Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Anne Chavruta, Yardena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Ta'anit, daf Tet Zion, page 16. Our Gemara here picks up on some of what was going on in that very long Mishnah, uh, where it's talking about the order of the day, and the Gemara follows that order of the day and explains a bit as to why that is the order, and also how they would remember that that was the order. It begins first with a mnemonic to, for exactly that, Rechov, Teva, Visakim, Efer, Efer, Kvura, Umoria, Siman. Meaning, all of the, what it says, Siman, the moment you see that Siman after, as a, in a section of Gemara, it tells you that the, the above or the preceding word or line or Rashi Tevot, right, acronym, would be a, a way to remember what's supposed to be done in what order, for example, or, or whatever it is that you're supposed to remember. In this case, it happens to be exactly that, right? What's supposed to be done in what order? Rechov, that's the street or the square. Teva, that's the aron or the ark. Visakim, they're supposed to wear sackcloth. Efer, ashes. Efer, also ashes. Kvura, they go to the cemetery. And then Moriah is apparently, you know, it's a mention of Hara Moriah. And the Gemara then discusses each of these things in turn. We're not going to get to all of them, but some of them. Uh, the Gemara, but to do so, right, of course, it's going to ask, Lami Yotim why did they go out to the street or to the square to begin with, right? That's the first thing that was discussed in the Mishnah, and here it is, the first thing discussed in going through the order of the day. Rebbe Chirba Abba says they go out to the square as a message, right, saying that we cried out in private, Private here means presumably inside of the synagogue, right? They daven together. So it's not quite private as in the priv- privacy of one's own home, but then they go to the synagogue and then that's not enough, right? It didn't work. They didn't get the answer that they wanted. So what do they need to do? They So they will disgrace themselves, right? They will. It's the losing of a sense of self in favor of whatever shame it takes to get them to go out in public and call out to God, right? That's the idea, that their prayers should be heard, that they abase themselves to such an extent they no longer care about themselves in the in the face of um, petitioning um, God to save them from whatever ill is surrounding them, right? Reish Laki Shamar, here we've got a difference of opinion slightly from Rebbe Chirba Abba and Reish Lakish. Galino, they move out to the square as a representation of exile, to say that they are in exile as opposed to comfy in their home, so to speak. And the idea that exile itself should provide the means of atonement, right? The, by virtue of them moving out to the square, it's not just to get them to be able to, to prostrate themselves publicly, but the very presence of themselves in the public square is itself, or it should be itself an atonement. So then the government wants to know, well, what's really the practical difference between what Rabbi Chirba Abba says about um, going out to disgrace themselves in public, as opposed to Rish Lakish's position that they're going out to put themselves into exile. What's the difference between them? So is this a practical difference? The Gemara explains that the practical difference is that when they're exiled, right, the move from one, let's say, if it's just exile, then theoretically, I shouldn't say just, if the focus here is a matter of exile, then theoretically they can move from one synagogue, from one shul to another shul. Right, meaning they have been exiled from their own, as opposed to having to go out into the public square and make make a scene of themselves. Really, right? That's the point. Um, and then, so going from shul to shul would not be sufficient for the Rebbe Chiyabar Abba position. Um, okay. Then the Gemara goes on to ask the next bit. 
Why do they take the ark? Why do they take the you know the ark that houses the Torah? Why do they take that out to the city square? Meaning, isn't it enough that they take themselves out? So Yeshua ben Levi says, well, we have this, you know, this uh, box and it's a modest thing, right? We keep it concealed. And now we're going to have to expose it publicly, meaning they don't want to because of the sins. We will be disgraced because of our sins. It's a recognition that this is something that's, you know, not the way it's supposed to be. And um, I suppose the idea is that atonement comes through that. The Gemara goes on to ask, <coughs> Excuse me, why are they covering themselves in sackcloth? He says, we're treating ourselves, we're going to treat ourselves before God like animals. Meaning the same way that animals have their skin on them, Right, we people will put sackcloth on ourselves instead of just regular clothing, right? And again, that's an, an a a way of abasing ourselves. Why do we put ashes on the aron? Why do we put ashes on the ark that's housing the Torah? Oh my, Rabbi Yehuda ben Pazi, Klomar, and he, Rabbi Yehuda ben Pazi says this is um uh it represents the verse in Tehillim ninety one in the in the book of Psalms. Imo anochi b'tzara. That we say, I will, when it's really in God's name, I will be with him in trouble. The idea of saying, like, with ashes on the on the um, the Aaron is, uh, we are all together in this in this shame in this time of trouble. Rish Lakish has the same idea basically, but he has a different verse for it from Isaiah from the Book of Yeshayahu. In all of their tsar or affliction, he was also afflicted, meaning. Presumably, this is, again, putting the people together with God. And I think the idea is here, we've got to draw that affinity in the hopes that God will then save us. Rabbi Zera says, when they first when he first saw that they would put ashes upon the teva, he got all nervous, right? His body was dazeli. His body would shake or tremble from the intensity of it. I mean, if you think about it, this idea of putting ashes on top of the Aron Kodesh is a, is a very strange thing. Certainly foreign to us in our, you know, the physical constructions. I think most of us are accustomed to a, an Aron that is built into the shul as opposed to being something that is movable. But even so, the idea that you could do something that would, you know, lay base the, the Torah or the, the Torah our own, right, the box for it, um, I think is really very dramatic, and that's his point. Why are they putting on ashes on the head of each and every person who's going to be there? Meaning that's usually a sign of mourning. There are times when people will do that, either either during shiva or sometimes also on, you know, the we put it on the, the head of a chatan for the idea of remembering the mourning that we don't have a complete um, complete joy at a wedding because of the absence of the Beit HaMikdash. And some people, you know, there's different things that people do with ashes on Tisha B'Av. Rabbi Levi Barcham and Rabbi Hanina disagree about exactly this, why people are wearing ashes. One says it's the idea of saying before God, we're like nothing. We're like ashes before you, before God. Meaning, and therefore have mercy on us and save us from the bad stuff, whatever the circumstances are that are causing all of this process. The idea here is that they, 
one of one of these two people in the in the Machloket, he says it's to remind God of the ashes of Yitzchak, of Isaac, the forefather, right? In the fact that he wasn't burned, right? He was not offered. And then the idea that that should also be a means of redemption. So what's the practical difference between the two of them? I mean, either way, everybody's getting ashes on their foreheads, right? So, or on their heads, I guess. So what's the difference with them? The real difference would be if somebody could use dirt, you know, afar, regular dirt um, from the ground instead of ashes specifically. Meaning if the idea is to say that we are nothingness before you, then dirt should be enough, according to that first approach. But if the idea is to put us together with Akedat Yitzchak, then we need the ashes specifically to say, you know, there was a burning that didn't happen, so to turn away from us in that way, meaning give us the redemption. Why would they go out to the cemetery? Meaning on a fast day, they're fasting. Why are they going out to the cemetery on this day? So again, we've got a machloket here between Rabbi Levi, Barcham, and Rabbi Hanina about why they would go out to the cemetery for this as well. One says it's like we're not like nothing before you, but we're like the dead before you. And again, that is a recognition that we can only be saved if God comes and saves us because the, the dead can't do anything, right? So the idea there is that God will, you know, it's a plea for mercy. Again, and the second view is not that we are like the dead, but that we go to the Batekfara, we go to the cemetery as a means of asking the dead, the souls of the dead, to, to plead with God on our behalf that there should be a plea for mercy from, from those whose house, so to speak, is in the cemetery. My Benayu. And again, the Gemara asks, what's the practical difference between these two? Because either way, they're going out to the cemetery. And this, I think, is a really interesting distinction to say that if the goal is to say that we're like the dead people, then they could go to anybody's grave, including a cemetery of, of non-Jews. But if they're going out to plea, to, to get the those the dead or the souls of the dead to plead on, for mercy on their behalf, then says the Gemara, really, that should be the the Jewish cemetery, right? The idea that anybody who's going to ask for mercy on behalf of the Jewish people, that's going to be the Jewish dead or the souls of the Jewish dead. And with this, we come to like, uh, the Gemara does go on. Um, yeah, I'll read one more bit about Har Moriah, since that's the last one. Um, why is this the the, why is this mentioned here? And again, again, they have a difference of opinion as to why why there's a discussion here of Hara Moriah at all. Israel. It is the mountain from which teaching went out to Israel, meaning it's the mountain upon which the Beit HaMikdash is built, you know, eventually and at this point, you know, they're well past that. The and the second view is that it's the mountain from which fear went out to the nations of the world. And of course, then the difference between them, the Gemara actually here at this time doesn't say my benai, who doesn't ask for the distinction between them, but we can understand that is this a matter of like the Jewish home, right? The Jewish seat of spirituality, or is it a matter of making the Jewish people to the lesson for the nations of the world? And I suppose the question of how universal you want to take the bad thing that's happening or, or how uniquely Jewish might really have an, an impact on which approach, which which rationale, meaning the, the, the steps of the process are exactly the same, but the why of it may sit better if it's a, 
you know, depending on whether it's a uniquely Jewish experience or if it's a worldwide experience, in which case those more universal answers might sit better. So, uh, you know, this whole stuff going through this entire, um, you know, ritual of what's supposed to happen here, it's very intricate. And thinking back to Pesachim and Yoma, where we also talked about how maybe we didn't know all the details, but there still was like a real familiarity with it. Like, and this is stuff we really don't know about because it's really not stuff that's done today at all. You don't take your iron out to the square and put ashes <laughs> on your head and prostrate yourself in prayer. Right. I mean, I completely agree. I think the closest we get is that every so often there's a fast day or a half fast day called for rain in Israel. And I think that only of, certain people do. Like, it's not even like only, all of Israel does it. Right. Well, also not everybody's religious, but yes. But I would say the thing that people do that I think is more universally accepted nowadays is we say to Hillam in Shul. And it's a it's a pale, you know, like it's not supposed to be in place of this. I understand. But it, as compared to this drama here, it, it's a, you know, it's quite. I don't know. It's a lot simpler to simply recite some to Hillam in Shul. Definitely. But um, but again, I think like with Yoma, you know, we read about it during davening with and also like we we know that the essence is supposed to be the korban for the holiday. So, again, this is just like totally, totally different. Um, I'm going to go on to the section here that talks about two important people that are involved with this ritual, <laughs> the Zakain and the Shliach Tzibor. And the Gemara really wants to go through a little bit, you know, who these people were. And what type of person did they have to be? And again, I think it's interesting that we know that a lot of what the Gemara talks about, and we've discussed this before, and even, you know, Tanaitic literature and Amoraic literature is sort of establishing the class of the rabbis. But here we're really discussing a different type of person. And first we begin with the Zakin, right? Zakin Shabahem Omer Lifnehem Divrei Kibushim. So there was a Zakin who would get them, uh, who would stand up in front of them and give them words that subdue, basically. Right? So what does that mean? Right? They taught in Abraisa. Right? If there was an elder present, Omer Zakain, the elder addresses them. Vim Lav, right? And if there's no elder, Omer Chacham, then a Chacham comes. Vim Lav, Omer Adam Sheltirah, then a man of stature. So it's interesting just to see sort of this old, this order here that there's something about the experience of time, right? That an elder gives uh, that is different than even a Chacham and get sort of more respect when it comes to, like somebody who's lived through things, uh, you know, sort of is the one who gets to subdue the crowd. And I think about that, again, we'll go back to COVID tour a little bit, but like I often, I'm blessed to still have some grandparents who are alive who are much older. And when COVID started in particular, I would always say to them, I'm like, is this like crazier than Pearl Harbor? And they would be like, yes, this is like the craziest thing we've ever lived through. So I think there's something to that, that like, a zakain, you know, can relate to like, if something is a time of tsara, they think about it in terms of the context of like other things that they have experienced in life. And where does this fit into that? And then the Gemara goes on, right? Right, so it's, is it possible that Gemara, the Gemara basically says that the Bryce is saying it's better to have a, a zakain who's not a scholar. And then so Abayi says, no, obviously it should be a zakain who's also a scholar. Um, and then, you know, and then other, and then otherwise it would just be, you know, that, that's who would, uh, that's who sort of would address everybody. Right. And then the Gemara goes on to say, well, what exactly would he say? 
Achenu, right? Our brethren. It's not the sackcloth and the fasting that will cause basically our prayers to be answered. Rather, it's repentance and good deeds cause it, right? So this is sort of the first pulpit speech, right? And then they quote, and it's so interesting that the, the example they use are not Jewish people, right? It's the story of Yonah and the people of Nineveh. And I think this gives us like a very universal theme to Teshuvah, that Teshuvah is not just something that Jews can do, but it's really something that anybody in the world to do. Anybody can connect to God. Anybody can return to God. Um, and then they quote Sukim to talk about why this comes from, um, from Nineveh. And then, you know, the Gemara goes on to talk about what exactly, uh, you know, uh, how did the king of Nineveh get them to actually do uh, Teshuvah? Um, so, well, you know, I'm not going to read all of uh, all of that part there. But one of the things that was interesting here is, is that one of the things to listen is Amr Shmuel, a filo gazal may reach. Let's say a person stole a bean, uvano bivira, and he built it into a palace. He has to raise the entire palace and return the bean to its owner. Now, this is a very significant halacha that they're saying that he does this because actually... Uh, there's a halacha about this, like in Jewish law, like let's say you have a stolen beam and it gets built into a structure. We actually say you pay the money and you don't actually tear down the structure. So it's interesting that sort of the the example that Shmuel gives is sort of above and beyond even um, even a, a, a Jewish halacha. Um, and and then the Gemara goes on and has another interesting discussion, which is Amar of Adavar Ahava, Right, Adam Let's say a person is guilty of a sin, and he confesses it, but he does not retract it. In other words, he doesn't actually try to do better. What does he compare to? It's like a person who has a dead sheritz, right? A dead, creepy crawly in his hand. And even if he immerses himself in all the water of the world, He's still coming because he's holding the shirt. So it doesn't make a difference that he goes to the mikvah. So Komi Adav, but he throws it out of his hand. Once he immersed himself in a mikvah containing 40 seah water, his immersion is immediately affected, right? So in other words, the idea is, yes, it's like he didn't do teshuva, but if once he gets rid of the shirt, he can actually do teshuva right away. So it's not writing him off forever, but it's saying he could go back. And then it gives some psukim to support that. Okay, that, that's the zakim. Now we go to the shliach tzibor. Right, the elder comes, right? And then it says, They stand in prayer. Even though we have a zakim or a chacham, right? Those are not the person who should leave the tefillah. Rather, it's just a, a, a sort of a person who is experienced in prayer. And so I think this speaks something about the importance of tefillah. That tefillah, it's not about being an elder. It's not about being a chacham, but that the skill of understanding tefillah and nusa is really a totally different set. And therefore, it requires a different type of person. So my husband happens to be a chazan, and like it will drive him crazy like when he's in shul and like nusach is totally wrong. Like people who really understand how davening is supposed to happen they really understand it. It's a, it's a skill and, and, and it's knowledge. And so I think that it's interesting to see the Gemara acknowledge that as well. And then the Gemara, the, the, the Brisa uh, that started this list, other attributes that sort of a Shlil Tzibor should have. 
Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Mitupal, the Ainlo, he has small children but knows means to support them, so he'll really want to daven, right? So in other words, it's almost like it's a person who fits it. You don't want a person who's too comfortable in their life. You want a person who, like, has something to daven for. Right, he has work in the field, right? He, he earns his livelihood basically by farming, and therefore he actually needs the rain. But his house is empty. He was, his youth was proper. In other words, and this is also, the Gemara will explain this a little bit later. He's a humble person. He's acceptable to the people. And this is also beautiful. He has to have a sweet melody and his voice is pleasant. So in other words, listening to Pila needs to be nice as well. <coughs> he needs to be an expert in reading uh, the Torah and the Nevim and the Ketuvim, right? So that when he says the verses, he knows what he's saying. And he also needs to know how to, how to recite some of the teachings. He needs to be a, a bucky in all the blessings. So in other words, he needs to be a person who's expert in the actual tefillot itself. And so what's interesting is when this b'risa was taught, the rabbis all turned their light to Rabbi Yitzchak Bar-Ami, who basically had all of these attributes, right? And, uh, and, 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 you know, basically saying like he was the person who they said actually should uh, be the person who should, who should, uh, uh, you know, lead the congregation. And then just to wrap this up, so the, now the Gemara is going to get a little bit more applications for the Shliach Tzibor, right? So it's saying the Gemara once asked, okay, this one of he has small children with no means and this house has to be empty. Why both, right? Both of those seem to say the same thing. So it doesn't mean that his house is empty from possessions or from that he's poor, but it means that it's empty from sin. Then the next one is his youth was pleasant. This refers to somebody who did not have a bad reputation, reputation in his youth. And I think that's also interesting because you know, we like to think as we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, we're talking about doing teshuva and things like that. But when we're talking about doing teshuva for the shliach, you know, for the community, it's basically saying the shliach tzibur needs to be a person who always was basically a good person. Um, and I think that's an interesting. Well, I just I want to say, like, I feel like, you know, as we get older and the people that I knew back in the day or that you knew back in the day are now you know, the grownups, right? The grownups who are the leaders of shuls and schools and all the kind of things. And every so often, I feel like I, I have the risk of that pitfall of saying, you know, back in the day, would you ever have thought that that person would become this person? And it's not right. But it's to avoid exactly that risk of thinking that, that you have here. Somebody who even in their, you know, even in their childhood or teenagehood or whatever, you would expect them to have grown up to be a righteous person as opposed to being surprised, Right, exactly. So, um, and then finally, uh, and then they just give some sukim here uh, to basically, uh, you know, it, it, to basically sort of prove this from your miyaku. So anyhow, but I just think, you know, it's interesting to see sort of the role of the zakin and the role of the shliach tibor is very distinct than being a rabbi. It's really not being like a member of what we traditionally think of as the rabbinic class or chazal. And these are two very different people. I think that's really an interesting observation. I also just want to note, I, I think there's something like ironic or pointed or dafka the point of the zakin when he stands up and he says, you know, the way you do tshuva is not by dressing in sackcloth and ashes. 
even though we've just spent however long establishing that they're there wearing sackcloth and ashes, right? Meaning they go through this pageantry for the sake of the rebuke, that that is not how you do real tshuva, which I think is really interesting. Like they, they have to go through the motions to be reminded that the real thing to do is inner work, not, not this external presentation, even though the external presentation is what gets them to there, to where the Zakin is going to tell them what you're doing is not the real thing. Right. And, and again, and I love the speech that's given like about, you know, like my brother's like, it's not the fasting that's going to cut it. It's not the sackcloth. You have to do the hard work. You have to do the teshuva itself. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadra website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.